This is What's Growing On, a show where we dig up the latest dirt on Ontario horticulture production, helping producers navigate best management practices and taste the sweet success of a quality crop. My name is Christy Greg McGuffin. And I'm Cassie Russell. Join us while we talk with specialists in the field of fruit, vegetables, and specialty crops to find out what's really growing on. Welcome to episode 8 of What's Growing On podcast. So today we're focusing both segments on a topic that's important across all commodities when it comes to thinking about pest management, and that is pesticide resistance. So first we'll hear from Kristen Obeid, who's the OMAFRA weed specialist for horticulture crops, on the status of herbicide resistance in Ontario, as well as a provincial resistance testing project that she's a part of. And spoiler alert to all you growers out there, Testing is free. And on the vegetable side of things, I chat with Dennis Van Dyke, our root vegetable crop specialist, about an insect pest that's infamously known to have some major resistance issues when it comes to management in potato and tomato crops, the Colorado potato beetle. For up-to-date information on fruit and vegetable crops grown in Ontario, check out our weekly crop updates at onvegetables.com and onfruit.ca. So while production systems and pest complexes can vary pretty widely across our our horticulture crops that we grow in the province, there's one factor that really links the sectors together, and, and that's weed management. And with that comes the potential for shared problems across the growing system. So I'm sure many growers have those persistent weeds that they deal with year after year. And so to talk about some of these problems, I'm joined today with Kristen Obeid. She's Omafra's weed specialist for horticulture crops. So welcome, Kristen. Thanks for joining me. Hey, Christy. Thanks for having me. So uh, before we get into some of these issues, then um, wondering if maybe we could kind of talk about, you know, just... The basics of weed management first and so I mean this might be <laughs> might be a big ask um, because we deal with such a mix of annual and perennial crops but is there a difference um, in critical weed management periods across growing systems? Oh yeah for sure definitely annual and perennial crops are totally different um, with their perennial species like your tree fruit for example um, you really, really have to control those weeds in the first year of planting is very critical because the weeds are very competitive. So the whole first year of planting is uh, basically a critical weed free period for tree fruit. Whereas for some annual crops, like for example, um, onions, onions also has a very long critical weed free period because they're not very competitive against those weeds. They don't like have a lot of... Um, top growth that covers the ground to shade out the weeds against the competition so you're looking at like almost a season-long critical weed free period but then others like carrots or tomatoes you're looking anywhere between six to eight weeks after planting is critical for them until they basically cover you know um, the crop canopy gets large enough to shade out the soil basically and so are there um are there 
prevalent weed species across the province or kind of like in, in certain regions, or is it really different depending on the crop? And that's a really good question because we tend to find like an annual system, so your annual vegetable crops, that you have more annual species. It kind of makes sense, right? But in terms of, so your common annual annual weed species, like your pigweed, ragweed, lamb's quarters, your foxtails, your crabgrass, that kind of thing. Whereas in, you know, your perennial systems, your vineyards, your orchards, um, and even things like asparagus, you tend to start getting um, the more hard to control perennial weed species such as bindweeds, um, thistles, Canada thistle, for example. But definitely um, weed species tend to become uh, dominant based on the cropping system. So if you are in a cropping system, you will tend to have specific weed species that are problematic. They take advantage of uh, basically the production or management practices that are in place in that production system. But across the province, we have our typical, you know, you know, mo more predominant about 20 different weed species. But then in certain areas, you might find um, hot spots for uh, different weed species. Right. Okay. But it doesn't necessarily, I mean, there's, there's, it's definitely that kind of potential for shared problems, right? Like it can, oh. the weeds don't necessarily know the borders between. <laughs> no, that's absolutely true. And I typically say that we tend to inherit in horticulture, the field crop problematic weeds, um, anywhere from three to five years after they become real problems in uh, field crops because, uh, because a lot of the, what we call the field croppers also, some of them grow vegetable crops. And so equipment is shared between fields and that is the, the most common way that weeds are spread is on equipment from field to field uh, on the same farm. Just here, here's an example, uh, glyphosate resistant Canada fleabane. It's pretty much widespread all across Ontario, but that started out as a field crop problem. And now we are finding it not only in orchards and vineyards, but we're also finding it in vegetable crops for the first time last year. So this is becoming, it becomes real problematic for crop growers because we don't have as many herbicide options or tools to use post-emergent in these systems. So. Well, and so, I mean, you know, you're talking about kind of these, these persistent weed species that growers can deal with. And so when a herbicide just isn't working for a grower, is it safe to assume that it has something to do with resistance developing? Um, it's never safe to assume because there are so many things that can go wrong with the herbicide application, you know, in terms of um, was it applied at the correct timing for the weed? Was it, you know, a pre-emergent versus a post-emergent timing? Um, did they spray it when the weed was, you know, too big for it to be really efficacious? Um, if it was a pre-emergent or soil-applied herbicide, did it receive the amount of uh, rainfall or irrigation required for activation? Um, was there, you know, a calibration problem with the equipment, anything, you have to kind of rule out all of those application timing and weather potential issues before you, you think resistance. But if that producer 
has noticed that is the only weed species in the field not being controlled, then, you know, and he's noticed it more than one or two consecutive cropping seasons, then, yeah, it would be worthwhile to get the the weed tested. Okay. Mm-hmm. So in terms of those kind of the weather conditions, I'm, I'm thinking especially, you know, this year has been really hot and in a lot of locations quite dry. So, I mean, as you said that the rainfall has, you know, plays a role in terms of activating certain herbicides. Um, can individual weed species be impacted by, say, things like extreme temperatures or can the herbicides used for those species be impacted? Oh, yeah, absolutely both. Yes to both. Basically, all weeds are harder to control in hot, dry weather. Um, what they do is they close their stomates. So basically, you know, when you apply a herbicide, the plant has to take it up and start to metabolize it in order for the herbicide to, to work against it. So basically, they they just they toughen up their cell walls and they basically say, nope, nothing's getting in here because I need to uh, conserve my resources because it is so hot and dry. Over 85 degrees, you you should not be spraying a herbicide because they're just not going to work. And then you can also get a lot of phytotoxicity to the crop. And, you know, in horticulture, we don't we don't typically have a lot of post-emergent sprays that you can spray over top of crops for that reason, the phytotoxicity aspect of the herbicides. It's really hard to find a rate in, in hort crops that will kill the weed but not kill the crop. So say a grower was able to, you know, check off all of those, <laughs> all of those other potential issues, right? And they still found that, um, you know, they've, they've been noticing over the past few years that the performance of a herbicide is really going downhill. Um, what is resistance? What is herbicide resistance? Um, and how does a weed become resistant in the first place? Well, in any weed population, there's individuals that actually already have a mutation that make them resistant to the herbicide. So it's not something that we've done. They just already exist. And then our management practices then select for those weeds that have that mutation to thrive in the population. And so it's typically not for about three years time that you'll actually notice you have a problem because it starts out as one or two individuals in a field. And then by year three, depending on the fecundity or how many seeds that that uh, species will produce, um, then you start seeing more and more, more individuals that survive the herbicide application. Once you have resistance in a field, you are really only going to be able to manage it. You'll never be able to totally uh, deplete the seed bank of resistant individuals because, you know, they tend to naturally exist in in nature. Right. So like, so even if you were to kind of stop the use of that particular herbicide or that, that group of, of herbicides, that there's still the potential that those resistant individuals will exist. Yeah. And we weed scientists, we like the scientific guesstimate is that in any acre of field, there's over 100 million weed seeds in the top five centimeters of soil. And on any given year, because seeds have a dormancy period, in any given year, only about a million of that 100 million will emerge. 
Wow. Yeah, and so basically if it's in your soil, you haven't noticed it for at least three years' time, you're going to have to manage that field knowing that you have that, that resistant weed forever. What's kind of the current situation in Ontario? Again, I know that's a big ask because <laughs> we deal with so much, but um, yeah, are there, uh, what, what are we looking at in terms of weed species, common weed species and their resistance? Well, in Ontario, we have what we know of. We have about 21 different weed species with varying uh, levels of resistance. So when I say varying levels of resistance, I mean we've found they're resistant to just one herbicide mode of action or herbicide group, or um, they're resistant to multiple or many more herbicide groups. In Ontario, the total trend is species becoming resistant to more than one mode of action which is really scary because really in horticulture, we focus on about six different herbicide modes of action in all of the crops. And uh, once we start losing one or two, um, those are typically the ones that we use for post-emergent control. And so in a lot of the annual cropping systems anyways, we tend to really only have one or two post-emergent herbicide modes of action to use. And once those are gone, then you're down to hand weeding. And that's really, really expensive. And in most crops, costs about $1,000 an acre. So is there a greater risk of resistance development with post-emergent herbicides? Hmm, that is a really good question. And I will use the group 14 um, herbicides. So those are some of our newer herbicides as examples, Chateau and Authority. So those are your pre-emergent or soil applied uh, group 14 herbicides we tend to use in horticulture. But some post-emergent ones that we use are AIM or Goal. And what they've noticed on the field crop side of things, and I'm going to uh, give an example with common water hemp, it's resistant to group 14 herbicides in about seven counties in Ontario. Super scary. If that ever comes into horticulture crops, I have no idea what we will do. But in that case, they find that the pre-emergent group 14s still work. And if you think about why that would be, it's pretty easy. It's, it's based on how the herbicide kills the seed as it's germinating. Basically, the plant isn't given a chance to grow. So as soon as that hypocotyl elongates, the herbicide kills it. Whereas on the post-emergent, the plant's already up. They find the group 14s don't work. A lot more work has to be done in that area, but it does make sense. That's interesting. And so, and the, the, the weeds that, some of the weeds that you mentioned that um, have the resistance to the multiple herbicide groups, um, is that just because of long-term exposure to those groups or are there similarities in terms of mode of action? Yes to both. <laughs> Again, so yeah, typically um, say for example, a crop like tomatoes, um, we're finding a lot of group two and group five resistant um, pigweed species. And that's because they're post-emergent herbicides that they have to choose from in that cropping system are, you know, Prism and Sencor, group two and group five. So absolutely, it's directly linked to what post-emergent products they have available. The same same example can be said in carrots. So in carrots, we find a lot of group five and group seven resistant 
pigweed because they use Gazagard and Lorox, which is a group 5 and group 7. Now, but they have no group 2 resistant pigweed because they never use group 2s in that cropping system. So it's definitely linked to that. But also, um, even though we have group 5 and group 7 resistance, and we say those are separate groups, they are all considered, um, like the bigger chemical family is a triazine. And so what we have found in some weed species is that even if it's resistant to, like say, a group 7, um, and a group 5 has never been applied, it could be resistant to both. So we have found target sites that confer resistance to both. And then there's also target sites that will only confer resistance to the one group. So yeah, we're, we're finding out lots of new things with this resistance testing, for sure. It's a, it, yeah, it's a complicated mm-hmm. thing, eh? So, um, so are there um, resistant weeds that we should kind of be most concerned about? I know you said there's mm-hmm. 21. Are there kind of some, some top priorities there in terms of concerns? Well, f- for, for me on the hort side, um, um, the, the large crabgrass that we found a couple of years ago that's resistant to group 1 herbicides, that's all group 1 herbicides. And so what's a group 1 herbicide? Well, that's all of your grass or your all of your graminicides. So, so if a producer has that, they have zero option in terms of, of control. And um, at first I thought it was only in certain cropping systems, but we found it pretty widespread actually. So, so that's one that, you know, it can be controlled by other products if they're registered in those crops. But in horticulture, we don't have a lot of those other products that are registered. So that one I'm a bit concerned about. Um, definitely, um, like I mentioned, the amaranthus or the pigweed species. I'm really concerned that we're going to see water hemp in a lot of vegetable crops. Actually, we have found it in peppers and in asparagus so far. Um, I'm worried to see it come. We have a lot of four-way resistant water hemp in seven counties now in the province. And it's a it's an outcrosser. So it means there's a lot of genetic variability in the population. And so those tend to develop resistance faster. If we get the, the four-way resistance, so that's to groups two, five, nine, and 14 in more vegetable crops, uh, we will not have any solutions zero and it's it's very widespread in Essex County where we have a huge acreage of uh, processing tomatoes and so that's one area I'm, I'm really watching out for that um, oh lots of things <laughs> I'm worried about <laughs> well, the biggest the biggest challenge right is we there's just no there's just no new modes of action coming our way once you have these things it's it's a game changer it really, it really is. Like I have producers that um, basically no longer grow those crops anymore because they just, they can't control the weeds. They have no solutions. And it's pretty sad when you're, you're on really high value muck soil and you now grow corn and soybean. So, uh, so you kind of mentioned that water hemp being considered kind of outcrossers. So the biology has a play then in terms of kind of the resistance concern. Are there other things that could kind of the just the behavior of the the weed species that could impact resistance development yeah definitely the totally the biology every every weed is different (laughs) um and and 
whether they're, we call them selfers or they can, you know, they basically, there's not male and female plants. They can just basically produce their own seed. Whereas if they're outcrossers, there's male and females and, um, they, those always have higher degree of genetic variability and a quicker adaptation to resistance development. Um, whether, whether the seed is, um, airborne or like Canada fleabane, for example, um, basically it's been proven that that weed seed can, can go in the atmosphere for 500 kilometers away. Wow. And so that's how it can spread. Yeah. Um, so it, it all depends on, on so many different things. Um, with the, with the water hemp example, um, and the amaranthus, cause it's a amaranthus species, the seed size is so small that, you know, when you harvest the grain or whatever, it, it's there. It's on the combine. It's on the cultivator. It's on your boots. When you, when you're, when I'm in a resistant field, I don't go anywhere else that day because the seeds are so small, they're very hard to see. You can't tell the difference between them and uh, pigweeds, other pigweed species. Um, and a lot of cases of introduction have been from buying equipment from the U.S. And, oh, and bringing yeah, in contaminated, bringing in contaminated equipment. equipment. Humans are the number one source of spread, though, for sure. Yes. Yeah. On, um, on shoes. Travel, on, vehicles. Kind of thing. Yeah. You yeah. name it. Machinery from field to field. Yeah. But that's the thing, right? That so many times, you know, you've got multiple blocks that it's pretty easy to Oh, yeah. To and like, it, that's right? the thing. When stuff needs to be done in the field, it usually has to be very timely. And they just don't have the time. Yeah. Clean, yeah. Clean everything down before you go into the next kind of block, right? That's, yeah, that's a big, yeah. that's a big undertaking. So I can, yeah, yeah I can understand that. So you've already mentioned you can't really know what you're dealing with unless you get it checked. So how mm-hmm. can growers get this this information? Is there testing that's available? Yeah, so this uh, we've been working on this project since 2016. And uh, so now we have uh, molecular quick tests, 16 different tests for 12 different weed species. Um, and basically, if anybody wants to get something tested and they're not sure they can contact me i can get them a sample collection kit or i can uh, come to the field and take the sample and then we send it to the lab we are now uh, working with a new lab right here in ontario in guelph and so it's pretty pretty straightforward um to take a sample we just need a one leaf from 10 different plants suspected resistant plants and then we basically test them for a specific herbicide group and we would need you know we like to know what was sprayed and so whether or not it makes sense to test for that herbicide group right mm, right so they're pretty specific like we can only test for things that we already know about that way with molecular testing we can't test for things we don't know yet if there's something that's suspect in a field and we don't have a test yet for it, we still want to know about it because these are things that maybe we can develop a new test. The real good thing about this genetic testing is as soon as there's a herbicide failure in the in the field, we can test it. So we don't have to wait that the, the weeds are like, you know, going to seed in the field already to do it. You can do it at any time and then basically... The whole upshot for the grower is, okay, then they can find out within like a week's time, okay, yeah, it is resistant. 
let's let's figure out our new game plan. And that's and that's so great to be able to get that um, like that in season information rather than you know so often it's, yeah and that's yeah, the yeah, difference that makes such a difference. Before we had to like it would take six months to a year. Yeah, yeah. No, it's great that you've got those tests set up that you can do it so much faster. So, um, why why do you think like why is testing important for the grower? Well, from my perspective, it's always better to know know what you're dealing with. So, number one, you're you're not wasting money on a herbicide that's not going to work, right? And then you know in that field, well, okay, say it's a tomato field where you have group two and group five resistant pigweed. Well, you know that every time you grow tomatoes in that field, you're going to be dealing with that issue. So maybe you take that field out of out of that crop and plant other crops in there and grow your tomatoes in a different field. But I, I also, um, you know, what I've learned over time with this testing is... Um, Resistance is specific to every field. It's very field specific. So I encourage growers to not just say, okay, well, I'm just going to test one field, then I know I have it on my whole farm, for example. No, no, that's not correct. It's very, it's field by field specific. So I say get a resistance profile for, for those weeds per field. I've come across situations where one field comes back with zero and another field comes with 100%. And so that's, um, you know, maybe that's a little bit because we are we have a small sample size in terms of how much we take from the field, but that gives the grower a better, uh, you know, with that field that came back as zero, him or her could still have in the back of her mind that, you know, there's a low level of resistance. We just didn't pick it up by the testing. So I should be prepared for it and start managing for it ahead of time. Yeah, and without having that kind of profile, I mean, if you were just testing that one field, you could get a completely different story. Exactly. And so, I mean, to get this testing done, I know you said that it's, you know, through a, a lab in Guelph. Um, is that at a cost? Right now, no, because... Uh, ba- Wonderful. Yeah, no, right now, no, we have uh, funding. I just really want to give a shout out to the project uh, supporters of the, if I could, Christy, because... Um, um, the OFM VGA has been great. They're helping me administer the funding for this, but we have funding from the Ontario Apple Growers, the Fresh Vegetable Growers of Ontario, the Ontario Processing Vegetable Growers, FMC, Syngenta, and Bayer for this work. So, and so what I'll do is I'll put um, your contact information in the show notes for this episode, so yeah. that if anyone's looking, take take advantage of those free, that free testing, then uh, then they can reach out to you for that. Yeah. Well, so. In terms of, um, you know, integrated weed management, what sort of practices can a grower do to prevent resistance from developing? Well, there's there's a lot of cultural practices they can do for sure um, in terms of integrated weed management. It's, it's really what everybody should be thinking about, not just about herbicides. We talked a lot just about herbicides, so I'm really glad you asked me this question. You know, start with a very clean field. And so if, if possible, before you even seed the crop, if you have time to do it with the stale seedbed technique, which is let weeds emerge and then apply a contact herbicide over that to control those weeds and then plant into a clean seedbed, that's the best. Also, you know, you use your crop rotation, um, use um, different crop competitiveness, like seeding, seeding rates and stuff like that. If that's possible, perennial systems, that's not possible. Then we also say always use multiple modes of action 
and basically that overlap the weed spectrum. So what that means is, you know, the weed needs to, the weed you're trying to control needs to be on both labels. Um, always use the full recommended herbicide rate. Nevertheless, because that's, you know, you're just asking for resistance to develop depending on the biology of the weeds in your field. But, and always scout, know what you have. <laughs> know what you have before you apply the herbicides because, you know, um, beginning growers sometimes don't understand that not all herbicides, just because it's registered on the crop, it doesn't control every weed. There's specific weed species that that herbicide will control in that crop. And the biggest thing is, uh, if you have time, but please, please, please try. Clean that equipment between sites. Clean your boots, especially if you're in a resistant field. Um, you know, try, just try to implement some of those um, biosecurity, we call biosecurity practices. Really appreciate you uh, you giving us all this information today. I think this is really, it's great that there's this opportunity for growers to get more information about, you know, their profile, what they're dealing with and, and get a head start on things. So thanks for your time today, Kristen. Oh, thank you, Christy. I was just speaking with Kristen Obeid, Weed Specialist for Horticulture Crops with the Ontario Ministry of Agriculture, Food and Rural Affairs. On our vegetable segment today, we are joined once again by our root vegetable specialist, Dennis Van Dyke. Thanks for coming on the podcast again today, Dennis. Hey, Cassie. Thanks for inviting me. Glad to be here. Awesome. So personally, as an entomologist and lover of all things insects, I am really excited that we're going to talk about Colorado potato beetle today. <laughs> Let's do it. So with Colorado potato beetle, whether you're an entomologist or not, you can't deny how striking these beetles are. The adults, they have these really cool stripes and the larvae, they're really easy to identify. They're like this orangey reddish color and really easy to see on the plants. So there's been a ton of research done on them and they've also kind of held up this position as the model insect for insecticide resistance. Yeah. For sure. They're often infamously credited with helping create or spur on the modern insecticide industry and all the uh, new products. So. Yeah, exactly. Um, but it almost seems like in recent years they've taken a backseat in terms of importance or just generally like the damage that, that they're causing to crops here in Ontario. So why do you think that is? I think we can probably point to the introduction of neonicotinoids uh, or neonics as a game changer, uh, at least in the potato industry specifically. So in the 90s, when those products were uh, introduced, uh, you know, growers were really getting to a point where, you know, they're tank mixing three, four, five different insecticides in one tank mix and still not getting control of their uh, Colorado potato beetle populations. So it was getting a little out of hand and those products really uh, were a game changer for the industry. Yeah, three or five different products. That's definitely not ideal or sustainable long term. Yeah, for sure. Uh, growers are also using, you know, propane flamers to kill the beetles. You know, they were digging <laughs> trenches along the field line with plastic. So the beetles would, you know, as they're walking into the field, they would fall in and get trapped, you know. And even then, you know, fields would still be devastated. So it just wasn't a great situation. So before we talk about what's working now or why recently they don't seem to be as big of an issue, um, how did these problems of needing to use things like flames and trenches really start in the first place? Uh, 
A lot of it has to do with what they eat. You know, they, they mainly feed on solanaceous crops. So, you know, potatoes, tomatoes, eggplant, and nightshades, those type of things. And there's a good reason you don't eat potato or tomato leaf salad, like, or at least I hope you don't. The, <laughs> the leaves are filled with a lot of toxic substances um, called glycoalkaloids. So, like, colored potato beetle have the ability to process these toxic chemicals, just like, you know, any pesticide. So they can process those in their bodies. The females also lay a ton of eggs. So there's lots of larvae out there, lots of potential to escape exposure. And there's also a lot of genetic variation that one of those larvae will have the ability to survive, you know, any new pesticide that it's exposed to. So, I mean, it's good that we have something that's working now, but thinking long-term pest management um, and the risks that these beetles are always capable of developing resistance, um, is there a way to see where we're at in terms of insecticide-resistant populations in Ontario? Yeah, the last few years there's been a Canadian Horticultural Council project uh, that's looked at insecticide resistance across Canada and potatoes, so cholera potato resistance. Uh, Dr. Ian Scott's lab with AAFC out of London has been doing a lot of the resistance testing for Ontario. And from my understanding, Dr. Scott, he's been collecting a lot of these insects from across Ontario um, to determine if they are these resistant populations. Um, So what have they been finding over the years? And are growers um, having to go back to this method of using flame and trenches anytime soon? (laughs) Hopefully not. No, I would say we're seeing some populations with reduced susceptibility to neonics. Yeah. So reduced susceptibility, you're looking at like 30 to 70 percent mortality or kill. So it might not be all that surprising. You know, neonics have been around since the 90s and it's a long time in Colorado potato beetle world. So it's actually really positive, I would say, that we're not seeing widespread resistance like some even U.S. states are seeing. Um One other thing about the results that might be a little bit surprising, we're seeing quite a few of the group 28 uh, diamides show up as either reduced susceptibility or resistant, which is a little bit concerning, I would say. And why exactly is it especially concerning about resistance to these group 28s? Well, if the time comes, I guess, and hopefully not anywhere in the near future, but if we ever lose uh, neonics, the group 28 diamides are going to be a real critical piece of any future Colorado Potato Beetle program. And, you know, if we're already seeing some split slippage of these products now, while we still have neonics, it's a little uh, concerning. It's just something we need to keep an eye on, that's all. One positive note is that even in populations that have some resistance showing up, we still see that they're susceptible to one of the other main insecticide groups. So if there's reduced susceptibility to either the neonics or the diamides like Corrigin or Veramark, they're still susceptible to something like a group 5 insecticide like Delegate or Entrust. Right. Now, earlier you mentioned that there's widespread resistance in the U.S., so I assume that they're doing similar testing on their populations. Um, What about other provinces in Canada? And if they do do similar testing, um, how do we compare um, in Ontario here to these other provinces? Yeah, there has been some national testing. I would say Ontario's results seem to be quite similar to the trends we're seeing in Manitoba. Um, across the board nationally, it looks like we're developing a little bit of reduced susceptibility to neonics in uh, quite a few populations. And on a smaller scale, like and on an individual farm, is there anything a grower can do to know if any beetles that they do have in their field um, that they want to control? Is there a way to know before they spray if those individuals are going to be susceptible to their chemical controls? Yeah, right now researchers are raising colonies of Colorado potato beetles, so they'll raise them in the lab, they'll spray them directly to see how many are killed, and I'm not sure 
growers are interested in producing more colored potato beetle on purpose. So there is a better way for growers to test themselves. There's a quick and easy dip test as developed by my predecessor, Eugenia Banks. Uh, the fact sheet's available on the Omafra website, but basically you collect a small sample of your beetles. Uh, you dip them into a small amount of the spray solution that you would have sprayed. And after a day, you basically see how many survive. So it's a quick and easy way to tell whether well, what you plan on spraying will actually kill the population of Colorado potato beetle in your field and get a quick sense of what the resistance is like. That sounds easy enough. Yeah, it's something growers could do, you know, half an hour and provide some good feedback. Um, researchers are also working right now on like a genetic test that would be able to determine if the Colorado potato beetle are resistant to certain products or not. So in theory, you would send in a sample of beetles and the lab would test it. And then a couple of days later, you get a result back of, of whether it was resistant to certain chemicals. Okay, so it's kind of similar to the herbicide-resistant weed tests that have been developed recently. Yeah, exactly. Just like that. You, you basically choose a product based uh, on what your results are that you'll know will have good efficacy. Right. Um, now, going back to something you mentioned earlier, that neonics might not be around in the near future. Now, is that primarily for resistance reasons? Uh, no, not just that. Neonics are also undergoing uh, some special reviews right now with the PMRA. So that's our regulatory agency that regulates pesticides in Canada. Um, so some of the proposed decisions have proposed a total phase out of neonics. So I don't really want to go too much into detail, but basically what's threatening the use on potatoes is that, that water sampling has been finding neonic residues that are too high for aquatic insects and they could be killing them. Uh, so it's not really clear which commodity is mainly responsible for the uses. So all proposed uses are, are proposed for a phase out. So in potatoes, at least the seed treatment and in use patterns that we have are, are a lower risk for losses into, um, into streams and water. So hopefully those uses can be retained, but we'll just have to wait and see what the, uh, what the decision comes back as. Right. Yeah. I know it's incredibly stressful as a grower to be waiting for these kinds of decisions, um, knowing full well that you could lose that option by, you know, next season. Yeah, absolutely. No doubt. And I think that's what's really concerning about potato and tomato growers in Ontario is that these products, these neonicotinoids are still doing the bulk of the heavy lifting when it comes to colored potato beetle, as well as a bunch of other early season insects. So we are still seeing good prolonged efficacy to cover that first generation of colored potato beetle and most of the time the second generation as well. Yeah, and so if we lose these neonics, that removes that cornerstone of the Colorado potato beetle program. Yeah, exactly. Like right now, we can basically focus on any second generation beetles that show up and spray once or twice based on, you know, established thresholds. We're really only exposing our, our beetle populations to one or two different active ingredients per year which is great for resistance management right now. Right. Now, you said second generation beetles. So are the neonics not lasting long enough to control that second generation anymore? Um, we're, we're not exactly sure, to be honest, you know, why the sea treatment seems to be running out of gas, so to speak, a little bit. Um, one thing in Ontario is that we do do a lot of seed piece cuttings. We do plant a lot of cut seed pieces. So with smaller seed pieces, you're also applying less active ingredient per, per seed piece. Um, so it's possible, you know, there's less active ingredient and it doesn't last as long. It's also possible uh, we're selecting for colorado potato beetles that have a longer life cycle, um, right? Remember that, that difference in genetic variation. 
Well, we might be selecting for beetles that have a longer life cycle, so they're avoiding the time when concentrations in the plant are the highest, and they might be emerging later after that. So that might also be playing a role, but it's it's hard to tell at this point. Yeah, for sure. You're right. That that's definitely great for resistance management because I've heard a lot, um, like that you can only spray a product on Colorado potato beetles a certain number of times before it becomes resistant. So it's not necessarily a matter of if; it's more so when. Yeah, I think that's that's almost a good way of looking at it because if you look at it that way, you only have a set number of applications available to you for one product, you know, whether that be 5, 10, 15 times, you know, looking at it that way really highlights the need to extend the effectiveness over as many years as possible with uh, Colorado potato beetle. So that means not, you know, counting on the same product every year to control your generation, but mixing in different chemical groups to prolong the usefulness of, of all of those chemical groups. So what could growers do in the meantime? Uh, one important thing we really need to be doing is extending the usefulness of these neonicotinoids um, treatments, especially the ones that plant. Uh, so while we have them, it's important that, you know, we don't spray neonics foliarly after the second generation. So if you used, you know, Titan or Cruiser Max or Actera or Clutch or something at planting or in furrow, you can't come back with another neonic later that year. So, you know, don't apply a sale or alias, admire, acteria, clutch, those kind of products after you've used a neonic inferral. So that's a really important point for resistance management. Right. And then what will a future Colorado potato beetle program look like if we do lose those neonics? Well, there'll definitely be an increase in foliar sprays um, for Colorado potato beetle, but also for other insects that were being controlled with that inferral treatment. Um, so definitely an increase in, in foliar sprays. I think that scouting will start to play a more prominent role as well. There'll be sort of a, a renewed, uh, interest or spotlight on using thresholds again, right? Timing those foliar sprays to specific life stages of the beetle when products are going to be more effective, usually on those earlier life stages. Um, there's some research going on right now about using like the mating pheromones, for uh, Colorado potato beetle to disrupt and sort of confuse uh, the males so they just kind of wander around. So that would be an interesting tool to uh, to reduce kind of the overall reproduction. And honestly, we might have to bring back some of those other cultural tools that, that we were using, you know, like like incorporating a propane flaming at some point or, or building a trench in some spots uh, that you know the beetle's going to cross over. Um, the goal, I guess, in the end is, is to avoid the situation we were in where, you know, growers were throwing multiple three, four, five, six products in a tank and still not getting control of Colorado potato beetle. I think that's that's the sort of situation we we never want to go back to and we kind of need to prevent. And that might might mean we have to bring back some of these other tools in order to help with that. Okay, so it sounds like you anticipate Colorado potato beetle will still remain an important pest, even though we haven't really been hearing about it too much these past few years. Yeah, definitely. Well, the thing is, these beetles, they haven't changed. You know, they still have that potential to develop resistance to any insecticide you throw at it. And they still have that, you know, ferocious ability to devastate a crop in a couple of days when the the numbers are high. So the risk is still there. We've just been really fortunate that uh, neonics are still working for us. And we may just have to get a little more creative uh, going forward. But hopefully uh, that's far in the future. So just in closing here, if growers are having problems where they suspect resistant populations or are having issues with their control of Colorado potato beetle, uh, could you provide some resources for them? 
Yeah, for sure. I'd be happy to. It's probably easiest if they contact me directly, um, dennis.vandyke at ontario.ca, uh, or we can include that in the description as well. Yeah, for sure. I'll put your email in the show notes so it's easily accessible. Well, thanks again, Dennis. This was a lot of great information, and I hope it helps some potato growers out there. Yeah, thanks for having me, Cassie. Really enjoyed it. I was just speaking with Dennis Van Dyke, vegetable crop specialist with the Ontario Ministry of Agriculture, Food, and Rural Affairs. Thanks for tuning in to our episode today. This has been Cassie Russell and Christy Grick McGuffin for What's Growing On podcast. For more information on horticulture grown in Ontario, check out the links to our fruit, vegetable, and specialty crop blogs in the show notes. A big thanks to our guests this week, Kristen Obeid and Dennis Van Dyke, and another big shout out to Michael Populin for editing our episodes. Music from this episode is the track Aspire from Scott Holmes. We'll be back soon with an all-new episode of What's Growing On. In the meantime, if you have questions, comments, or suggestions for a topic you'd like us to cover, please send us an email at onhortcrops at gmail.com. That's O-N-hortcrops at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. <laughs>